In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's be seated. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It was because of the signs that Nicodemus came to Jesus. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these miracles, these these signs that you do unless God is with him. So far, John only details the first sign, the sign at the wedding feast in Cana, the miracle of the water turned to wine. But the evangelist admits that at the end, at the end of his book that Jesus did many other signs which are not written in this book. And even here we read that the clamor for signs has already begun. When Jesus drives out the money changers in the temple, the Jews are indignant and ask for some kind of a sign that would account for this behavior, that would justify Jesus' actions. But Jesus only spoke cryptically of destroying a temple and raising it again in three days. And then we also read that many believed in his name when they saw all of the signs that he did. But Jesus did not put much faith in them. And later, Jesus would express frustration with the people's apparent constant need to see signs and wonders. Even when he feeds 5,000 people with five loaves of bread, a wondrous sign, immediately they ask for another sign, implying that one more would seal the deal for them on their faith and their allegiance. Well, in comparison with these, Nicodemus seems to appear rather decent. He appears here as a curious admirer. He's cautious and uncertain coming to Jesus at night, but he's filled with admiration nonetheless. But an admirer is not really a disciple, is it? And high regard and esteem are not faith. Nicodemus has seen signs, and he is generally impressed But what he cannot see, according to Jesus, is the kingdom of God. In my opinion, not much has changed. For as much as we talk about post-Constantinian, post-Christian America, in spite of the new atheism which proselytizes through arrogant flippancy and sharp wit and mockery, I think that our country is still largely filled with admirers of Jesus. There is still a clamor for signs. If not for miracles, then at least for the comforts of middle-class life that would confirm that Jesus' ethic of hard work, paying your taxes, though not too many taxes, and decent, clean, wholesome living is still the best thing going. Yes, I think there are many admirers. Disciples? Well, that's a different question, isn't it? What is it about these signs that throw Nicodemus off and throw off the others? Didn't Jesus perform these miracles to reveal himself as the one sent from the Father? Doesn't he say that the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me? 
it would seem that there is nothing wrong with the signs themselves. Instead, it's the problem lays on how they are seen, how they are viewed, how they are interpreted. The teacher, they, they appear to be regarded as confirmation of what the people expect Jesus to be. We hear an exclamation that he is a prophet because of the signs, or a great teacher, or a rabbi, and even in one place they admit he might actually be the Christ. But as visible confirmations of what they largely expect, the signs amaze, but they do not radically reorient. They produce wonder, but they do not produce repentance. They do not disturb. They are not a scandalon, a stumbling block. So it is with Nicodemus. The signs lead him to confess that Jesus is a rabbi. A rabbi par excellence, a rabbi even that comes from God, but still only a rabbi. Well, Jesus tries to redirect the clamor for signs to a different sign, a better one. And he does this repeatedly. To the Jews in the temple, he points to the temple of his own body. To those in Capernaum, he points to his flesh as the bread from heaven and his own blood that is shed as the font of life. And to Nicodemus, to this teacher of Israel, he sends him back to the Torah to consider the sign of the bronze serpent. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Perhaps Nicodemus would have heard the echo of Numbers 21 in his ears. Set the bronze serpent up on a pole that whoever bitten seeing it will live. Perhaps he would have caught on to the double meaning of the word for pole or standard, which both in Greek and Hebrew can also mean miracle or sign. But blessed is he if he began to take in the shocking correlation. The Son of Man would be lifted up in the same way. He too would be hung from such a scaffold. If Nicodemus desired a sign of God's kingdom, then he would need to be confronted with the scandal of the cross. For Jesus crucified is the greatest sign of all. It is, in the Gospel of John, the miracle, the great miracle of the cross. It is the consummation and meaning of all the other signs performed. Only at the cross does one receive Jesus as the one whom the Father sent. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Distant, safe admiration is no longer a possibility. When he is lifted up from the earth, he will draw all people to himself. Well, what happens to Nicodemus is uncertain. It's interesting. He just sort of fades away. He recedes into the darkness, into the background while Jesus continues to speak. 
But we, we hear the words. We, of course, have received our Lord's great sign of salvation in faith. Especially now in Lent, how can we miss it? We surround ourselves with the cross, from the sooty cross on our foreheads to the rough-hewn one on Good Friday. Even apart from Lent, we pride ourselves in being theologians not of glory, but of the cross. Yet perhaps there still exists the possibility that even now, even among us, it may be the respectable admiration of Nicodemus that we embrace rather than faith. It's interesting to recall what happened to the bronze serpent to which Jesus compared himself, that sign and source of salvation. It's just kind of an offhanded comment, but in 2 Kings 18 we read, In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. And he removed all the high places, and broke the pillars, and cut down the Asherah, and he broke to pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. striking that this great sign of salvation became the object of superstition and idolatry, a relic that had lost its true meaning. What a frightening thought to consider the possibility that Christ crucified, this greatest of signs, could ever lose its true significance for us. But isn't it a real possibility? Isn't it a danger for the church? Isn't it especially a unique danger among us, theologians and ponderers of the mysteries, that the cross can be turned into the most important trinket of our theology, an ornament that adorns a perfect system of thought, or maybe a perfunctory stopping point for all of our sermons? or even worse, an unnecessary or outdated dogma of a bygone era. Of course, we should ponder and debate and discuss the doctrinal significance of the cross. It is a noble work, and it is a necessary work, but our horizon can never be this admirable work of ours. Our horizon from beginning to end, must always be Christ crucified. The one who lifted up draws us to himself. Well, the danger of Christianity comfortable with the cross is a real one, and many have written about it. On the broader popular level, the sacrifice and love of Jesus can be and is admired by many but admiration isn't faith. Yet among those whose vocation it is to work in the church and to preach, there is always the danger of the subtle substitution of the cross for a concept that we replace it with a presupposition 
that it becomes a stepping stone for something more interesting. But the cross must ever remain a scandal on, a stumbling block to this tendency. It must always be that great sign of salvation that takes our breath away so that we might receive the breath and Spirit of God. It would seem that this is the purpose of our liturgical observance of Lent. For it offers us an occasion, as our versicle says throughout its season, to fix our gaze on the author and perfecter of our faith, on the great miracle of the cross once again. In fact, in this Lent, let's fade like Nicodemus. Let's recede into the background and give way to Jesus. Let's let our own words and profundities and theological musings be hushed so that we only hear the voice of the crucified one. Hear him now. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Amen. The peace of God that passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.